Hi everyone, I just wanted to give an introduction to the Meeting House building. So the project that we work for is funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund, who fund a lot of our events, including this one, which we're very grateful for. And the project is about sharing the building's radical history and radical history in the local area. That's everything, so I'll pass over to Anna and Shade. Hello, so obviously today is starting differently. Usually, thankfully, with Newington Green having the support, we've been able to have a really good... Can you hear me? Okay. We've been able to have a really lovely space to have more of the community to join us, but obviously with the pandemic and it being Halloween and our good friend and Auntie Rona, <laughs> things are different now. However, thankfully, we're able to film all of this so it will be streamed online. And really and truly, that's what's going to be happening from here onwards with our events so that we can still continue keeping Black Exchange. Um, we also want to thank Newington Green for giving us this space from the get-go. As much as, obviously, when it comes to Black History Month, it seems that's when the arts industry or even spaces then want to make space and allow people to hold events. It seems as if Black History Month is always the one month of the year where black artists are able to be seen or be more present. But I think what's great with Newington Green is that they're always... Their ethos supports Black Exchanges, which is about enabling everyone to be able to have a voice. So I want to thank Newington for that. Um, we also want to touch base on the reasons as to why we created Black Exchange. We always go back to um, that... <laughs> Akala. Akala. <laughs> because we were reading the book together. When are we reading it again? It, it was, was like last year. Yeah. Um, natives, the book, and when we were reading it, we kept having these deep conversations and realizing that we can't be the only people talking about having to unlearn and relearn your own history. I think, obviously, there's a lot out there in regards to you can do a DNA test and figure out where you come from and your parents and the stories that you get told by your, your elders, but having to relearn so much because of the lack of truth and education that's out there in regards to history... It's unfortunate, but when you're living in a Western world, especially some places in Europe, or should I say all of Europe, you're limited as to what history you're taught. It's always that concept of whoever, when it comes to history, the winner is the one who retells the story. And the story that we're taught, it didn't just start off or end with Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks, and even the stories that we're told then. Rosa Parks was an old woman who was tired and sat down in the bus, which is not the truth, because it came from she was always doing civil rights prior to that. So I think... The book of Carla definitely started us both off wanting to explore our history and relearn things, but not try to use Black Exchange as a tool to carry on this false pretense of being teachers, because we're not. We're literally both artists who are learning as we're going, but creating a space where everyone can have that conversation. Yeah. It's, Black Exchange is all about creating community, and I think like we're all on this journey of relearning our history and unlearning essentially all of all of the lies we've been taught. Um, so normally when we started out, we had our first first event like prior to lockdown and we had a crowd of 80 people and we were able to have a beautiful conversation on the topic of colorism, which is an it it isn't an 
an intense topic and it affects a lot of people. Um, but I think with Black Exchange, we're not shying away from these conversations. They're conversations that are critical to have. And with Black Exchange, it's about how can we have these conversations and how, we, how can we move forward beyond them? Um, and so with the, with the series of events we've run with Newington Green over Black History Month, uh, we've decided to focus on the topic of, of the arts because that is the industry we're in. And also to make it a celebratory event of what, what we're achieving and what other artists and creators that we admire are achieving because for us with Black Exchange, if we have a space, it's about who can we bring into this space and showcase and celebrate them as well as ourselves. I think it was important also to make sure that we recognize that thankfully because we have been working on our own arts and our own sort of journey ourselves independently, if we're then given opportunities rather than being selfish with it, enabling that to then become a platform for other voices. Because I think the issues are that with the arts industry, it's almost as if only one black artist can make it at a time. There's only one major film director who everybody knows about. There's one editor who everyone knows about. There doesn't seem to be, or should I say the arts industry doesn't seem to want to make spaces for multiple. And I think if we're being given opportunities, we want to be able to make a platform that can be open for everyone and create a space and bring a community with you rather than making that space for yourself and then taking it and for yourself, basically. I think what's been great with Stour Space when we had the space originally in Hackney Wick, that's a community space, but not many people knew that it was a free space that was able to be used by anyone, but simply because of everything seeming so somewhat intimidating to be able to go in and approach to ask questions because when you go into the space itself, if in all honesty, prior to us having our event, you didn't see people who looked like you who were there. It was predominantly um, European established artists who were, already, who were already going. And so it was only known amongst a small audience. But once we were given a space, then it created opportunities for other people of color, though we hate that terminology because you can't put everybody in one category. It then became a space that when there were audiences who were asking how we got it, we were able to connect them. And I think that's what it's about. If you've managed to get an opportunity, don't be selfish with it. And hopefully with Black Exchanges, thankfully we've been able to be given funding and support to be able to make a platform there we can actually put it towards different artists. So it doesn't have to be people who are from my field where I'm painting and fashion design, but we can actually include dancers or actors and start to bring more of a, a voice for everyone. Does that make any sense? Yeah, um, I think because currently within the arts industry, there's very much an elitism and nepotism of who you know rather than um, your actual creative ability. And at times it can be a very frustrating industry to be in. And I think we're both very much in the positions of rather than trying to wait for opportunities, we're making our own spaces and our own opportunities. Or if we are given opportunities, we're making do with menial budgets that are actually allocated to black artists to make work. And, you know, being given lemons and still fucking managing to make lemonade. Excuse me. <laughs> I think that's the thing, it's about not waiting for things to necessarily be given to you, but trying to 
use what you have to make the end result yourself. I think if you constantly wait for something to happen, you may be wait, waiting forever, especially in the industry that we're in, in regards to the arts, it's so predominantly not people who look like us that the opportunities are, they're too scarce, there's not enough. So for that, if you can manage to, even if you have to work five countless jobs that are not fulfilling in any way, shape or form, you do that to produce the funds to create the work. And then once you've managed to put something out, you then manage to create a more of an audience who, you know, not even that, you manage to make the project that would enable you to gain an audience for you to then move forward. I think that constant idea of being frustrated, especially of the, this time that we're in with social media, everyone's constantly putting things out there, so you're constantly comparing yourself or trying to keep up, but the facts are, if you have the base and the foundations to actually create something great, then if you put that into a final project, you will be able to get something back from it. Yeah, I think because we very much talk about relearning our history, but I think we have to be very conscious that we are living and breathing history. So any m work we are making or we are documenting our communities and our lives, these, this is history, and I think it's about what we can do to create that for the next generation of what we did not have when we were growing up. But I think overall, the, found, the foundations of Black Exchange is more about community. As much as some people may assume that because you are, even this terminology established, they can assume that we are, but quite factually, we're all still trying to navigate and create our own platforms and initiate a project that can create a community and bring everyone together and hopefully, thankfully what we've been able to do with funding, we've been actually able to put our words into action because I think we have this complex of people always talking about what they want to do and waiting for somebody to jump on it, to believe in it. But if you don't believe in your project yourself, nobody else is actually going to believe in it either way. So with that, we want to bring on board because we did start a little bit late. We've got our, fir we've we've got got our, our first, first performance. performance. Yeah. We've got Vivian Chris, who will be doing a dance performance. We'll just clear the stage. Being black is like, you know, having swag, looking good, having girls, girls watching, like that's some cliche, you know. And me as a dancer, you know, the name is Black Exchange, so what can I give it to you? What can you give it to me? I don't even know how it just. You know, try to share my own story, bring you somewhere, and like, you're just gonna decide at the end of the day, you decide what it's like. So, me, I'm kinda young, you know, so I'm like, yo, I'm not really happy with everything, the train, the hip hop, but I will show you right now why it's to be why many people perceive to be black for our generation. DJ, drop the drop.
That was my people. You know when you tell up in your club? That's kind of cool. But now in 2020, being black is also more than that. I'd say that in a way, people right now, you know with Black Lives Matter and everything, they see shit like different. I mean, we, right now we can like a way being black is, <clears throat> is an history. We come from somewhere. We value. We human beings. We beautiful and we made it. So the only thing I would say like is good right now is like we got faith, we got hope. We we got hope because right now everybody's kind of aware of what's going on. So we won't think about like this. Why not think? Every single like human being wants some change. Everybody wants some change. You know? Changes. Changes. We got history. We got kings in our country. We got queen in our country. So if you 
forget that. The only thing I want Mana people to remember, at least, we have to be together. As a black people, as human beings, I don't mind if you're black, white, yellow, green. We just together. I think the only thing I want is just love. Vivian, thank you so much. That was such a beautiful performance. I loved the, fi the final piece of that. It was so moving. Um, maybe want to talk a little bit about um, how in which uh, movement through your practice is a form of expression. Particularly, I think also in terms of um, cultural expression as well, because you're of Congolese heritage. Um. Yes, it was like, how can I say that? Um, my background, basically, my both from Congo. They're born there, and I'm born in Paris. And um, when I'm dancing, um, my background, like I start dancing with hip-hop. I went to school, so I studied ballet, contemporary, jazz. And after, like, because that's me, like, it's my foundation. I mix my culture. Like when you Congolese, you know, you have to dance when you go to a wedding, to a party or something. So it's all my culture. Everything was, yeah, that was everything I got in my life. 
In regards to being a dancer now in London, how do you feel, who feel do you feel like a sense of responsibility to tell your story of your ancestry through dance, or is it just your own conceptual way of movement? Um, for me, like when everybody does art, is an expression of ourselves. So for me, basically, that's, I will almost say like that's my duty to do it like that, to bring my, my background, my, my history, everything. Because that's, that's what I'm going to say is just personal, yeah? But I've seen like, for example, in Africa is different than in London, in Europe or, you know, in America. So my parents did a sacrifice to move from, you know, the country to try to give me because I know it was for us, as, as, that was for them, but that was for us, me and my sibling. So in certain way, it like when I got the occasion, I'm always going to give back to where I come from. So that's, my, that's one of my ways to give back to my, to my roots. In regards to mainstream media, whenever you have had to work with musicians or if you have a project that's come your way, have you been able to truly give them yourself 100% or have you felt that they have ever somewhat you know, tried to initiate a way for you to appear? Because I feel like, especially if you're having like commissioned projects or projects that are already dictated to you as to how they are, have you ever felt restricted or they try to mold you in some way? Because especially with mainstream media, especially with dance, there's either commercial or there's you know, freedom to be truly who you are. Because we've had, for instance, Robia, who's a musician, not a musician, sorry, a dancer. And whenever she has choreographed her own project, she's felt much more free within herself in regards to work on commercial projects where she's toured with artists such as Rita Ora or just mainstream musicians. Have you felt there's a huge difference or have you felt you've been able to be authentically yourself? Nah. <laughs> no, like, um, it's really different. Like, like she said, I think we kind of have like different experience, but what she did say was exactly the truth. I did commercial for many artists, and I will never say that's me. I'm not able, even like, I work with different artists, I do different music videos, different even performance and everything, but it's not me. When a choreograph is you, but it's still not really you, because you do your movement, but that's the other people, that's the dancer, they're gonna do it again, you understand what I'm saying? But me, the only time I cool and I had the opportunity to be me is when you dance like in a theater or contemporary, it's more like, I would say, cause when it's commercial, that's what I say, it's like a fast food. You're going to McDonald's, you just wanna eat, but we're not going there for the flavor. You understand? So like the audience is going to be different. They just want to see if everything, if it's shine or something. But when it's more like, I would say underground, not really underground, but it's more like for a specific audience, like people really looking for see dance, like for real, now the performance is, dif the performance is different because people are going to choose you for who you are. Even if like in commercials, choose me for what I am, but what I'm going to do at the end of the day is not me. So that's the difference. 
In, in terms of, because you work, work both across in London and in Paris, how do, you, how do you feel the reception is different in terms of, for, aud for, the, for your audience, and, and how in which you're able to be yourself and to bring your creative energy to it? In France, it's really different. We're more like emotion, and um, storytelling and um, yeah, freestyle and everything. But in, um, in London, it's more about like the performance and the show off, like backflip. Um, I don't know, but it's really different. So me, I would say like I'm lucky enough I'm not really lucky because I choose to, but for me, you got to experience everything to really find yourself. For example, me, my first language is not English, but you say something in English, it might be a joke. But for me, for example, in French, it means nothing. Or I can give you another example in Lingala, or, you know, because everybody is different. Your body language is going to be different. Your words you're going to choose is going to be different. But me, what I think as a human being, I need to experience every energy of everywhere and like if I can learn every language in that to be the best version of myself so that's what I feel do you feel like in regards to the commercial dance it will ever change in regards to them always trying to want everything to be performance or do you feel like you're not waiting for it to change you're just trying to do it your own way because I feel like there are some people who are really trying to push, trying to break the industry and making it change. But there are some people who just truly want to just navigate their own, their own lane. Where do you feel like you would sit? Uh, me personally, I think I'm not the best example. Because um, personally, when I do like commercial job, most of the time I'm just there for the money. I will not lie to you and say, oh, I, I don't even like to be backup dancer. I don't even understand the concept. Like, that's mean you train all your life and you dance behind someone, and when you give the ticket to your mom, she say, oh, Beyonce. You understand what I'm saying? That's not my name, so I don't really mind. You understand what I'm saying? So me, what I do is like, I like to do a commercial, anything, any type of job, like dance job, I learn. But at the end of the day, I know myself. In like a couple of years, I know I might gonna stop dancing because I don't want to do that all my life. Uh, that was a dream when I was a kid. Now I'm in the industry, okay. But what I really want to do is like, I just want to create. I prefer just to create things. I just prefer to say something. Because for me, art is saying something. So yeah. So what do you want to do instead? That's a big question. Yeah. <laughs> What's next? What's next? What's next? In oh. Um, what's next, what you mean, like in a couple you, of weeks, months, years? No, or? no, in regards to, you said that when you were a child that you liked the idea and you wished to do the idea of dancing and now you're doing that. Yeah. So what do you feel is next for you? In another way to express yourself other than movement. Uh, what's going to happen next is, is like for maximum five years, maximum, um, I'm going to create my own company. Uh, like just relate to dance here. Yeah? I'm going to create my own company, and I will use um, 
Dif uh, I don't really want to say everything because I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna lie. I know exactly what I want to do is right and everything. It's just like um, I want to give a different experience of dance, and I want like to dancer to understand like a dancer is powerful. Because most of the time, people when you use when they use in, in many type of industry, a dancer for me is sometimes is even useless. And I, like in a way, like you're not gonna be you. You're just gonna do this, this type of movement, but people are so different. Dance is like human being. If I talk to you, if I talk to the next person, you're really different. So that's why I'm like, I just wanna like bring some real individual. They say and they they show to the audience who they truly are. And me, I will put like my message on it, and that's what I wanna do. That's what I'm gonna be like. In, I give me five years. How come five years? Why are you choosing this five-year mark? Kashan is always like, I have to do everything and do it now. Yeah. <laughs> basically, I feel like, yeah. Basically. I, I get where you're coming from. Why choose five years? Because I just don't want to do that. Like, I want, for example, um, I want to have my own property in the meantime. I want to, um, I want to, everything. Sorry, I know what I wanted to say, but I was like, mm, relax. So yeah, <laughs> but I got all the project. Yeah. So that's why I say maximum five years. I know like exactly what I want to do. Yeah, that's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you so much, Vivian. And like your performance was really beautiful and moving this evening. Um, we are now going to open the conversation and we're going to be joined by Othello who will talk us through his creative practice. So thank you, Vivian. Thank you. Thank you very much. Do you to introduce yourself, Othello, and your yeah, work? Um, my name is Othello Hartley. Use the microphone. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I love voice, so. Yeah, my name is Othello Souza Hartley. I'm a visual artist. Okay, so I came across the work through our best friend's social media. There's a love-hate relationship <laughs> with that, right, as we both know. Um, and originally, I approached you in regards to Anticlone mm. because I planned to do an, um, another visual um, and also online platform of showcasing artists who do not conform to suit society in short. But then I came across your work and saw that you had an exhibition and we had a mutual understanding and... Um, Mutual understanding. That's, yeah, 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 that's the best was, way yeah, to pull it. Right? Yeah, yeah. Should and we then, talk about its mutual understanding? Yeah, go for about it. About not being defined. Exactly. Because it's really weird. Because it is called Black Exchange, and so I would just continue the conversations that I've reached a point now. when if I've been doing lots of interviews recently, so people who interview me start off with "You're a black artist." So I have decided now in, in my career where I am now is that if you come to me with that narrative first then I won't get involved. So you have to come to me as a person, as an artist, and research my work and come to me as a person. And the reason why I do that is because if they're working with an artist of another culture, race, if you want to call it, it they, they sort of talk about the person. And I feel that we've reached a point now when I'm going to demand that, and I'm quite confident to say that I'm comfortable in myself and my work and my practice, that I don't have to accept things of the past. So now if you're going to approach me, whether you're a journalist or anything, or you talk about my work, and if you come to me with that, I would literally say no. Mm. Do your research, understand me, 
but don't come with your preconceived narratives of what I should be. How do you feel that the industry that you're in, you've managed to obviously have the strength to be able to say no because so many other artists don't? What made you finally feel like you came to that point? I think it's through conversations and talking to other artists of colour who just want freedom. Mm. And it's okay if you want to be part of it, it's okay. But sometimes you're forced into it. So I'm like, I am a really strong-headed person. Mm. So it's like, I don't really care because people would present me with opportunities and say it's opportunities. But I've reached a point where I'm saying, no, it's not opportunities. Trying to put you my, in the box. My work is strong enough, so yeah. you're not giving me an opportunity, you're just recognising my work. Mm. So if you change the narrative from saying someone's giving you an opportunity to saying, no, I should have be on that platform. Mm. So that is how I've changed it. So it's no longer, before it would be like, oh, thank you for this opportunity. But now it's like, no, no, no. Deserve I deserve the opportunity, yeah. so I'm not going to bow down to you, the narrative that you want. Mm. So if you... It's the kind of a thing like, like I look at it now is like if you're sitting on the table, you're not a higher position than me. We're on the same table. So when you meet me, you're going to meet me as a fellow, as the artist who's putting the work to, to do what I do and continue to do the work. So you are not there and I am here begging you. It's like you are coming to me because I have something. To offer the yeah. table. Yeah. And you're something to me, so we meet in the middle. Yeah. Not yeah, you are there. Yeah. I'm giving you this kind of like handouts now. So mm. yeah. That's good. It's powerful. Mm. Shall we actually quickly put the other side on whilst Anna continues on the next question? I, I, was, I was just going to say, before we start talking through your work, Othello, mm. um, in the way in which um, you can kind of end up being tokenised in a way, um, do, you, do you think there's a way in which you can kind of use that to your advantage because I feel like there is, there is kind of almost a huge question that I think mainstream media is asking and wanting from black artists and creatives, okay. yeah, yeah. that there's kind of a yeah. missing narrative and it's how in which you can kind of almost yeah. sometimes manipulate situations okay. yeah. in order mm -hmm. to create, the, to give the work that you mm -hmm. want to give out anyway. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I because I, I admit, I could be perceived as the, as the, the one of those artists you just mentioned, one of those tokenism artists, I, I admit that. But what I do for myself is that is how you use that position. So like, I have an open call at my studio. I have lots of people who are around team age 16 to 18, maybe about 18 year olds, uh, who come to my studio and they say, like, they call me up and say, fellow, like, I'm, like one guy actually recently, he just called me up, he just, he was, I think he just, um, just graduated and he was like, I'm really stuck, Othello, what do I do? I said, come up to my studio. And literally he came there and he was like, I'm so stuck, what do I do? And I, just, and I gave him a few tips. And literally in 10 minutes he was like, I've got it. And he left. And I have a lot of people come into my studio. So this, this is my way of that, using that position. So if you come to me and say, look, I just want some advice, I will give you my time. Just come to the studio. I have an open call, so I always do that, and there's different people. Um, someone wrote to me recently and was like, I just need some guidance. And I would say, I'll get back to you, and I'll always get back to you. So I think that's the position that I use. So it's always giving that advice or being a person that you can come to and, yeah, just talk to. Do you feel like you've taken that responsibility? No, it's something that I want to do. It's not responsibility. No, I just see it as like, I, something that I want to do because, obviously, I grew up um, not far from here, and it's like, 
the arts was always seen as this thing that was that you're not part of, or it's seen as very prestigious, mm. or the word middle class comes into comes into context in this. So for me, it's like no art should be for everybody, and it shouldn't be in this little bubble. So if I felt that when I was growing up, my thing to do is to make sure that everybody feels inclusive. Mm. So even when, like my exhibition, when you came to it, it was in Piccadilly. It's quite a prestigious gallery, and it was nice. It was a nice space. And a guy walked past, and he was standing at the door. And the woman said to me, "Oh, he won't come in." So I went up to him, just left everybody, and went up to him. And I said to him, "Come in." It's a black guy, and he was like, "Oh, I just came from work. I got my overalls on." I said, "Man, don't worry about it. Just come and enjoy the art." But he didn't. He chose not to come in because he felt that thing like, yeah. "This is." This is this barrier, this is this door. I don't, I should be a certain person to occupy this space. Mm. So I went outside and I was like, Roman, come inside, please. It really, you should come inside. And it's not just about color, because the same thing happened the last day of the exhibition. These two, um, sort of, I wouldn't say the word Essex, I hate to say the word Essex, but they were two women, white women. And they were looking for, saying the same thing from the outside. And I said, come in. And they were like, oh. and then they were like, we're not really into art. And there was really cockney. You know, proper Cockneys, East London is like, we're not really into art. Blah, blah, blah. I was like, nah, come and appreciate it. And so they came into the gallery. Unfortunately, the other guy, he didn't come in because he really felt like he, didn't, he wasn't dressed the right way. But these two women came in. They go, oh, I don't really go to galleries. You know? But do you know what was nice is that they, they were allowed to come into this space. It's not an exclusive place. And I hate this kind of exclusivity that some people feel that they shouldn't cross that line. You know? Invisible barriers. Exactly. So we've got some pictures up of your work. I okay. wanted you to um, speak on some of them. These are the ones that I was obsessed with when I first okay, came cool. across them. We had the paintings before. Okay. Um, maybe perhaps talk about these and then we'll go back to okay. the painting. So this piece was called... I was going to do this whole piece with black women and particularly dark-skinned black women because you talked about colorism and... That was our first topic. Yeah, and my ex-girlfriend, she's, she's very dark. And we spoke a lot about this colorism thing. And even she had issues about colorism and even the issue like being about mixed race women and feeling that, you know, there's how she, when she was growing up, there was always this thing about if you're a dark skinned woman, you feel like you're, you're not attractive, you know, and, and even things like if you wear certain clothes, that if your clothes are dark, you should be wearing light, from her family, wearing lighter clothes. So anyway, all these conversations in my head, I really wanted this project with dark skinned women but I used one woman and it just stopped there and this um, filmmaker wrote this quote on um, Instagram and it's called Reclaim the Hue. So I called it Reclaim the Skin. So, and I'm gonna leave it as one picture because I just picture has been, it's got a lot of attraction and I thought just, you don't need to make a whole project. Sometimes it could be one picture. So one picture is called Reclaim the Skin and it says it in, it says it in one. Mm. Um, the second one is a performance so I've always, as, as, a, as a black guy growing up in, in London, again, it's just people putting you into, an, into a sort of a narrative. You have to be this. And it's not just white people, it's people as well. It's like, you have to be this. And if you're anything alternative, are you gay? Are you this? There's all these questions about you as a person if you don't fit a certain stereotype. And about two years ago, I was, I was um, this was playing my mind. So I did this cheeky performance to a Polaroid camera, and it was called Own Narrative. And this is like me saying, I don't really care what box you put me in. You know, if I was gay, I'd be really open. I would say I was. I grew up, I have a mum that was married to somebody um, previously. 
and we've always had conversations about this. And so if I, if I was, I would have a family that would support me. But it was like, so people who come with that narrative to me because of the way I am, it doesn't bother me. So this piece was called Own Narrative, and it was like me saying, I'm just going to be who I am. The work that I do, I use my body. I come from a performance background. When I was a teenager, I went to WAC in Camden. So I did a lot of performance. Um, and it was a performance piece to a Polaroid camera. And it was just me saying, this is who I am. I really don't care what box you want to put me in, because I'm free. I'm free of this kind of, in a way, this kind of masculine thing. So one of the projects I did was a 10-year project about masculinity. And I feel that I'm free from all those sort of things. I can just be me now. I don't really care. What? Do you feel like that came with time? Obviously, yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah. I feel like there are some people who instantly know what they stand for and they always make sure that with all of their um, mediums that they're able to yeah. illustrate that. But then even the concept of you being able to explore photography, paintings mm. and drawings, that can take time for people. Because for instance, yeah. when I was at university, I went to London College of Fashion. Mm. And though I came from doing fashion design, I also had an arts background because my mother went to Campbell College of Arts and then I also saw painting and photography and graphics. And, but even when you do a degree, you almost feel like, even at uni, you have to spe specify which subject you wish to go in. But with you, automatically, you've kind of explored everything. I think that comes from my dad because my dad always said to me, like, you can be anything you want. And it's like your foundation sort of Yeah, so my, I had a really good foundation. A dad who was like, you can be anything you want. And just believe in yourself and do what you feel that you want to do. So it was like those words have always jumped to my head, just be what you want to be. But that's quite rare because especially I feel like I, I grew up with a black mother. My mm. dad was Latino and European. But with that, I had a mother who was working within education. But working within the arts, and I feel like a lot of black people especially, it's not the path or the career path that oh. is chosen. Oh, let me tell you the background story, Daniel. When I was, I was always good at arts at school. Yeah. And when I was doing GCSEs, my dad was like, no, no, no. So I did have... What changed? Do you know what? It's, it's, it's you doing what you truly believe and then him getting to a point and realised, and we had this conversation about two years ago, we were sitting in, in the living room and he just said to me, and it's out of the blue, you know, like fathers don't say much. So my dad was watching, we were watching TV. It was like a Sunday, because I always visit on a Sunday. So we were sitting there watching TV and he was like... Maybe you've got it right. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, I didn't get a chance to explore myself. Because when he was growing up, it was like, you get, a, you go, you get an education or whatever, and you, you get a job and you have a family. Oh. And you don't question that. You don't question that if that is you or not. It's like, this is what you do. But I think it's also, especially if like second immigrant families, mm. you know, like yeah, second, yeah. second generation immigrant families, it's almost as complex of, you need to go to university, you need to get a degree. It's all very yeah. structured yeah. as to how it should be. And they never got a chance to, my dad openly admitted it, never really got a chance to explore himself. And so, in a way, it was... Him and making sure that you didn't do the same. Yeah, and it was kind of like an admiration in a way, because at first it was the other way, you have to follow that route. But then it's other time, maybe he was reflecting, he didn't never mention it because, you know, fathers don't open and talk. Why do you think this is an issue with our community? Not that it is, but I'm stating it is. I just think there's a time, you just don't talk. And I guess my dad was reflecting over this all the years. And in that brief moment, he came out and said, he said it, which I didn't even know he was thinking. So maybe over the years, he was thinking about it. Like, did I really get a chance to explore my true or person he was? He just followed what was norm to him. Yeah. So if you were to give advice for other young artists, what would the advice be? Just 
It's like this, and this is how I treat life. You get on the train ride, get on the train, and you just follow your dream, mm. right? It might have some bends, mm. it might have a few like, you know, little incidents, mm -hmm. but you've got to believe in your dream. And you think, if anything about this time now, tells you how things can just turn in a second, yeah. and everything goes upside down. Pandemic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so for me, it's like, follow your dream. It's like, what do you have to lose? You know what I mean? And it also depends if you're a very materialistic person or not. If you're a materialistic person, then that's a different story altogether. Mm -hmm. But if that's your dream, follow it. Mm -hmm. But what I say is, it's like you just got to follow your dream. And like you said, sacrificing. I've had to do other things. I've interned. I've worked in galleries. I do a bit of workshops. And now it's kind of like, it's a bit different now. But I've done all that, you know, to survive. Mm -hmm. Right? I've even done calling up market research one time. To, you know, like calling people up. I've done all that. But I feel that if you, if you have a dream, you just got to follow that dream with all the pain, all the things that you go through. But in the day, it's like you've only got one life. And why not just, in the end, just say, you know what, I did it. And yeah, and I actually met a guy years ago who was 73 at the time. And he said to me that he, in the 60s, he, um, I keep meeting these people, and he had said that in the 60s, all his friends were saying, you can't go and live in Italy. He liked tailoring. And he's a black guy, right? And this is the, and they were like, oh, no, you can't go to Italy. They're not like black people. And he said, OK. So he just left, mm. went to Italy. Well, this is the thing, though. That's a great um, you know, strength to have. Not everybody mm. has that, especially This is why I'm age. saying it's really good to have people who can surround, surround yourself and mentor you. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because I've had friends of all different ages, but it's really good. So someone like meeting him, who was like, I just went to Italy. All his friends were saying he's mad. He said he lived there for years as a tailor. Then he went to France did a tailoring in France and he came back and he was just like, do you know what, I've lived my life. And he told me a story about his daughter's boyfriend who came to him and said, oh, I couldn't find a job. And he said to him, is England the only place in the world? But that's the thing, I think mm. when you see, especially in the media, the way they portray the rationale to be this, you know, even with America, you've got that concept of American dream, mm. yet you have Trump, but that's a different story. But, you know, it's like this concept of the Western world always being the place where everything has to happen. Yeah. If, it, if you can't make it in America or you can't make it in London, then you can't. Yeah. But the truth of the matter is, if you have a passion in it and a, an art, you mm. can really do that anywhere. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Could you talk to us about the third phase right, so this is another one of those things that I do in life. So I always have set myself goals in life and it's usually outside of my comfort zone. So about 2017, I just got really fed up with London because there's an art shop at the end of my road. If you live in East London, there's art shops everywhere. And it's so cool, it's so easy to find people who think like you and they fit into the narrative and it's like, and that's what you want and you get spoiled. So I just thought, where can I go where I don't know anybody? And so I found out about its residency in Uganda. How did you find out about the residency? I just heard about it. And what I did was something that is you just never do. Usually everybody emails and goes, I just picked up my mobile phone and said, I just want to get out of London. Mm. And I literally called them and I was like, hi, I'm this artist from London. And they were like, uh, hello? I was like, yeah, I'm an artist in London. I want to come to Uganda. And the woman was so surprised. She was like, can you just send us some of your work? Send them the work. And then I had no money to go but properly because it was just seven weeks in Uganda. And again, if you trust this inner belief, so they, they accepted, and then I was like, ah, right, I've got to survive seven weeks and still pay my rent. So I had no, and literally, then I said, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. So what I did, I, I started talking to people, everybody I met, 
met some guy who happened to be, they do this exchange between East Africa and London, a gasworks gallery. He, was, he called me in for a meeting and he was like, hello, who's, who's sponsoring this? Because we send some British artists to Uganda doing an exchange. I said, nobody. He was like, nobody's sponsoring you. This was like a month before I was about to leave, or two months. So he was like, can we help you? And I was like, yeah, please. And then he said, he said okay, we'll pay you a fee. And then I spoke to somebody else, this whole conversations and keep talking. And it's like you reinforce the things and you bring it to them. Then someone at this university said, oh, we need to connect to Africa. And it was a really thing because I think the next wave they were saying the middle class is going to come from Africa. You know, the university is always looking for the next wave as Chinese right now. Ended up getting um, a sponsorship. Mm. I put my, 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 my whole... before. No, yeah, listen, a month before, they paid for my accommodation. <laughs> So I literally, a month before I go, everything came into place, but literally, I, literally, I was going to go, I was going to go with no money, and I was going to do it, which is limited money, but literally everything came through in a month. Mad. It was mad, but it's only by just speaking up and saying, I'm doing this thing, and, and it happened. So you feel like you were literally having to speak to every single person you met? You know what, if you want something, because someone said to me, it's like, it's like one of these things, like, I always get advice from people, they say, like, you don't know how close you are to certain people, but if you open your mouth, if you stay quiet, no one knows what you want. If you open your mouth and say, I need, people might not know somebody, but they might know somebody. So I opened my mouth. So I went to Uganda and I just met loads of people from all different age groups in Uganda. And I started off with, when I gave, they gave me this um, shipping container. That's what I had for a studio. And the only thing I knew about Uganda was the red soil. So I asked this local guy just to get me some red soil. And we started from there and I started building this installation, which was an installation at first, and then it became photographs in the last day, two days. But I built this through conversations, like the, the background is called bark cloth, which is particularly in the area, but it's not that color. And this is kind of a thing with the younger generation who I met who want to stay in Uganda and want to change the narrative of Africa. They don't want to come to Europe, but they want to do business with Europe, but they've been held back by a president who's been there for like over 35 years. He's been there longer than, it's the second youngest generation in Africa. So they've been held back um, by somebody and some of them, he was being in power longer than they'd been born. Most people. So what made you go to Uganda? I just wanted to go there. Yeah? Because I've got this thing about East Africa. Okay. So I went there. Is that your ancestry? Or no, you just uh, have just, a... There's some rumour, but I don't know. But I wanted to go. I wanted to go to Ethiopia, to be honest with you. But I went to Uganda. <laughs> Uganda was the second right? option. I went to Uganda, right? And, and then it's like people, and they all kept saying this thing about, we don't want to live in Europe. And it's just like, this, they said, we're so fed up with this Western narrative of Africa. We just want to hand it. And they all kept saying it. And I was like... Well, it's true, though, because of the media, how they always portray Africa to be exactly, somewhere that is a place exactly, of age. Exactly. But, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then these, the materials that in the background you see is bark cloth, which is synonymous with this area. But these people who are trying to make it really contemporary, so there's some designers out there making clothes out of it, and there's a guy who's making, changing the pigments of it. So I used that, and then the soil. Then this was goat rope that I, I kept seeing around the back streets. So I wanted to dye it, so it's different to being in London, you go to an art shop, you have to get on this Buddha Buddha, so there's a taka taxi, and you get on the back of it, it's crazy, because every time you get on it's like this motorcycle taxi, and you've got no helmet, and everybody just does this on the roads, and you're just life in your hands, so I go to this market, and you have to walk through these, these little... It's freeing though, I get it, because I did a residency mm. in Marrakesh, and for me, going into the Medina, yeah, exactly. I was crazy inspired mm. of the noises, the smells, mm -hmm. everything, even mm -hmm. in regards to the culture, yeah, yeah. but I think that's... 
if obviously, like as you say, you don't mm. believe you're Ugandan, but even in your step foot on African mm. soil, there's so I mean, something. Yeah. But then it's the, what's good about it is you go to an art shop and someone says to you, oh, this is the... Art shop, it's no, just no, this, like this is the experience I want to tell you. Yeah. It's like the experience and the spiritual experience is like you go to London, you say art shop, and they go, here's all the dyes. So I have to go through these markets and they, every particular place is where people sell something. So there's these Arabic women, these, um, they're, they're, they're black Muslims, and they were sitting there all on the floor. So I was trying to explain. But then we had this, it's like these little connections and just telling you about the dyes. But I mean, it was like a, everything had this like, spiritual connection, like a meaning. So I came back and died. And then the people and the, the connections and people never really asked me where I was from. They didn't even think I was from London. So I had loads, and then... So that's the thing, when you are in London, that's the first question, where you exactly. from? Exactly, they just assumed that I was somewhere from there, yeah. and that was... So that was this, I made this work, and then the, the, the kanzu, what the men, men wear, were brought in by the Arabs, and because I was thinking of this contemporary thing and bridging this gap between different generations, and because I wear a lot of black, I thought I was going to make it, get a local person to make it in black, and then everybody was like, oh, it's so contemporary, and that's what I wanted. So it was like traditional things, and listen to what people were saying. And there's something that I, I, I adopted out there was not talking, staying in silence. Mm. Because once you go to certain spaces, because we are from, before we are from Europe, if you speak and then they, or you mention you're from there, there's a lot of questions become centered around you. Mm. So I just adopted the thing where you stay silent and just listen to conversations and into an open studio and people came and talked. So when you created all of the work, mm. did you think about where you wanted it to be exhibited once you were back in London, or you just no, create and no, see no. where it No, I just made next? the work, and then only last year, I wanted to print these pictures, if I do have an exhibition, on the actual bark cloth, because you can get bark cloth paper. It took me two years to get the, the, the paper, to, they have to make it by hand, and then it took me, once they had all the paper made, it took me like, maybe like a year to get it to London. But when you explain the process, especially to, you know, we have this complex, especially within the mm. arts, you have established artists and then you have up and coming. Mm. When you were approached, or if you approached them, the established galleries in Piccadilly and Mayfair, mm. how did you find the reaction to your no, work? No, it's just fine. The only, thing that, the only thing that I get for me is the people say, I don't know where to, not so much to that gallery. I had that talk. Yeah, they just don't know where to place me. Because they're like, you are, you went to, I'm not lying, I went to St. Martin's, I went to Campbell School of Art. So I did go to like some good art schools. And obviously the way you dress and stuff, so they don't know where to place you. And I've literally, I think I told you about experience. Someone put a call out when I was, when I first graduated, someone put a call out for black creatives and they want young creatives. And I turned up to this place in Islington and the guy said to me, you're a bit, you're not raw enough for me. And I was like, why would you say that? Because it's like, you wouldn't say it to anybody else. He was like, you're not raw enough. But did you ask him what he meant? I knew exactly what he meant. Yeah, but what did he means you ask that you challenged, you challenged him. Because yeah. I'm, not, I'm not silly, it's like you challenge, he doesn't want someone, so obviously, so the thing that I get is where do you place you? Because they want you to do, either do uh, an aesthetic that's very African, which is nothing wrong with that at all. Because if that's your, if that's the kind of work you do, that's fine. But do you, like I had a gallery before and they wanted to understand that my work is quite dark and it's not black, it's not really cut. So it's like, you're not fitting into that narrative. And people are like, oh. And that's what we discussed about yeah. 154 Gallery. Exactly, in, um, exactly. I was in Somerset House. Mm -hmm. Even though the artists, of course, are all incredible in their own right, yeah. they all have a similar concept. Yeah, right. It's all very And it's who's controlling that. Typical. And exactly. by the people who are controlling yeah. it are not. And they, want, and, and they want that. So if they, if they don't identify, it's like, 
And this is the thing that why, why I've changed this thing about when people say black artists, because you don't, they're trying to limit you and not give you, a, give you freedom. So it's like, if you're from the crib and you're going to do a certain type of art, or do, so it's like, no, 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 this is what I do. And then they don't know where to place you because it's like, oh, well, where do I put you? You don't fit into the African art market. You don't fit into this market, but it's like, just call me an artist and put my work out there. Yeah. But do you feel like you've had to mainly do it yourself, or do you yeah, feel yeah, yeah. like... Like I said to you, you've got to have thick skin. You've got yeah. to keep going yourself, and you, you've got to keep pushing it and keep working on your work so that your work stands for itself. You know what I mean? So it's like you're going to keep going, and then at some point, hopefully, people are going to like... Because like, if you keep working, you get better at your work. And it's like, if you've really got thick skin, your work will, I truly believe your work will take you there. It might be hard, but it will take you there. And it and depends on what you mean taking you there, but it will, it's, I don't know, it's like, how can I, how can I put it? It's just like, no, you're like the pain that never goes away. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because yeah, yeah. I'm not going to give up. Yeah. So you could try That's and... the thing, not everyone has that... Um that constant desire to keep never giving up, you know, mm. because especially mm. with the arts industry, there's so many doors that you have to break through yeah. to enable you to make the next step. Mm. But I think that's good advice to give for the younger generation. And also especially. you said something else, well, don't get fooled by social media. Yeah. I swear to you, do not. There's 100%. so many people who look at social media and think everybody's doing better than me. And social media is like a dressed up theater, right? And it's great, social media is perfect but it's dressing up, it's like theatre, everybody puts a performance on and you can sit there thinking, oh, my friend's doing so well. No. I'm gonna stop. Yeah. Yeah. These are the rest of them. Oh yeah, this is someone put here. Yeah. And the next slide, I think there should be another one. Yeah, um, could you, yeah. That's own narrative again. Who, is this you? It's me, yeah, oh, I, okay. use my, I use my own body, my work. Okay. In some of my work, shall I say. And then there's one more final slide, I think. Oh, that's, that's the finished piece. So did you end up exhibiting these? Or yeah, did it was, you... I exhibited it last week. Oh, OK. And I exhibited it, the first time it got exhibited was in Rome. So I took it to Rome um, in 2018. Mm -hmm. And then it got exhibited at Piccadilly. Mm. How have you found it being exhibiting at the Piccadilly? Really good. It's yeah. really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. All thank right. you so much for giving us all of the information regarding yeah, it. Yeah, cool. You're amazing. <laughs> Do you want to introduce yourself? Well, so I'm Emmanuel. I would describe myself as a writer, work in fashion, and I was, I'm also the creator of a page called uh, The Little Black Diary, where I talk about the African diaspora in Europe. That's pretty much it. So I remember we met at the last Black Exchange exhibition on the bus after as well. <laughs> and then you started talking to me about the podcast that you do, as well as where you were working before, because you, you both come from fashion and you worked for matches, no? Exactly. And then we were having that whole entire conversation about being usually maybe perhaps seen as the token or there's only one or very few of you within the office. And that's how it was for me when I was more into the fashion industry. How do you feel... Um, working there and now working for yourself, what's, the, what's making you feel different about well, it? Well, in terms of Ovi space, I would say that when I started working in fashion, it was not in a city like London. I was in Munich, so, which is the, it, it is one of the fashion capital of Germany. So the, um, let's say it was very different from, from London in the sense that I barely see any black people in the city. 
And the only black people I saw were expats in, in the office with me and um, all happened to be French. Uh, so, I don't think, in the sense of tokenism, I don't know. Um, because uh, in the office, I didn't have any experience that was, that made me feel so. Because we were, you know, we were the French. So, I feel like um, when you go abroad, for example, and you say, okay, um, I'm, I'm French and you're black, people tend to better accept the idea more than French people. So um, if you said, obviously you would have the question, okay, you're French, um, we talk, and then, and they were also quite uh, sensitive of not asking the, but where are you really from? I didn't hear this kind of question. So that was uh, the thing. But do you think there's also, I think sometimes when you can go to a new place, um, people can not have those, whereas like, because I find here in England, I get asked more, where I'm from than if I go anywhere else. Like, even if you go to, like, I go to America to visit my sister and, oh, you're from England, it's just, yeah, that's cool. But whereas, like, if you're trying to say you are from England and being black or being mixed race, there's this kind of questioning that you can't really be. So sometimes going to a new, a new place kind of, kind of takes that away from it. Yeah. Uh, I think so, because even, so I studied in Italy too, and um, that was the case. So when I was there, I was just a French girl, as opposed to when I saw black Italians, they were like, oh, these, you know, N-word people in the country, always. Yeah, yeah, when they talk about uh, black, uh, black Italians, this is how they describe them, you know? And, but me, I was like, oh, the Italian French girl, she has a nice French accent when she speaks, we love, uh, we love her. Then obviously you would have situation where you would see um, the racism, but it was not like any black Italian would experience. I was, I would say like I was kind of privileged to be French, kind of. Whereas if I go back to my experience in France, for example, is not the case. <laughs> mm, is that why? Because you said when you were talking about your experience, that's why you ended up making your project. Do you want to speak yeah. more about as to why it came so, up? So, um, you know, after living, so I've lived in Italy, lived in Germany, and came to London. So it was, I was born in, uh, in Cameroon, which is my, um, my country, and came to France. So after all this experience, so when you grow up in France, you only have the experience of, uh, first of all, meeting uh, Africans who, um, or black French, who belongs to um, their background is from the ex-French colonies, you know, so have uh, a certain, you know, uh, setting, uh, and there is also one narrative they want you to fit in, is that, that you uh, are obviously from Paris, I'm not from Paris, <laughs> I'm from a city called Bordeaux, uh, and that you are from the banlieue, so the suburbs, and you are kind of, you know, a thug, kind of, that's most of the narrative they like to, to hear, and I am absolutely not that, and also that you have these people that, you know, they want to... Uh, put this narrative onto you that you are this kind of person. And I experienced first, I have a first trigger uh, when I was a tour guide. I was a tour guide in a castle, in, a, um, in an old castle in, from next to Paris, one hour away from Paris or something. And uh, all the people that asked me where I were from, how come did I speak so well French? Where did I went to school? Where French? All the visitors that were foreigners, I did my... Um, uh, you know, my visit, and they were happy. And I remember 
um, one woman who, uh, because also I have a very French name, so my name is Emmanuel Maréchal. So for any uh, French people who see me, because I have that name, uh, and I don't have any accent when I speak French, uh, I must be from the Caribbean, French Caribbean, so there is this thing. Uh, and this lady, when she came, uh, she asked me where I was from. I already found this thing offensive, you know, from the beginning, like, who are you to ask me to yeah. <laughs> know where I am from? Why should I tell you in the disclose on my... that we all get everywhere. My information like this, I'm not asking you where you're from, so why are you doing this to me? But she insisted, and I was like, okay, so I have a Cameroonian background. And she's like, but how come your name is sound French? I was like, why do I have to explain that? Because she was like, oh, but you know so well the history of France, and you must be from the, the, Car the French Caribbean to know that, because if you are African, you wouldn't know. And I was like, yeah, I went to school in France, you know, even though the, the story is, is very whitewashed, that's still not a story, you know? So um, this kind of um, experiences, you know, made me start, you know, thinking, okay, uh, there is something wrong with the way French uh, perceive me, because I feel French uh, with no issue. I also feel Cameroonian, there is no issue, you know, I don't know why it should be a problem to be both, you know? But they only see one side and I'm a little bit tired, so, uh, at the time, you know, I was studying Italian. And I was like, okay, I'm just gonna go and do um, an Erasmus in Italy, you know? And also there when I arrived, that was another experience because I uh, barely see any uh, black people at the time. All the black people I saw were street vendors, so they were illegal immigrants. So I, it, made me, it made me wonder what, you know, um, what, what Italian people saw in, uh, in black people. And at the time, I wasn't also aware of um, uh, the Italian uh, colonial history. But as, as I went you know, along, and because I ended up living in the country for five years, uh, I was like, they have a colonial past, but they just don't talk, about, don't talk about it. But like, I think it's worse than in England or France. It's really worse, because for them, it's like, um, they would tell you we were better than the French and the British because we only have uh, four or five colonies. I was like, it's not a number. Belgium had two colonies. Have you seen what they did? <laughs> like, no, so it's not a competition. Exactly. Um, and uh, they, um, they also believe in that narrative that they just came because they have a different type of colonialism that instead of exploiting, um, they exploit it still, but it's a different because... Um, Historically, Italy is a country that um, always had political issues and poverty. And so you have a lot of uh, Italian that immigrated elsewhere. So uh, colonialism was created right, right after the unification of Italy just to um, avoid unemployment. So we're gonna send you in those colonies and you're gonna get a job there and make your life there to say we are an empire and we are prospering. So this is how it differs. So that's why Italians believe that um, they went to, to, I don't know, Somalia, Eritrea, or Libya, or Libya just to uh, build bridges and museums and things like this. It's interesting in which these countries kind of create these narratives in order to have a complete avoidance and not take responsibility. Because it's, it's the same in, in this country because we didn't have slavery physically on this soil. Exactly. British people will act like they weren't involved in slavery 
but this is how we got a Windrush generation and whatnot because of the colonial history with the Caribbean. So it, it's, it's kind of interesting because I think in comparison to America, which is a history it can't hide from, mm -hmm. and it's kind of similarly also in terms of um, Germany's history, their history is so overt that the country has to acknowledge its past. So I think there's a lot of European countries who are in this kind of middle ground where they can almost act as if they were never involved with it and kind and become almost exempt from their role in it. Yeah, and I also think that um, problem with Europe, because a lot of countries, uh, for example, um, uh, Italy is very in, um, law and constitution is inspired by the French constitution. And we, you all know how, how French we, we brag about, oh, we are, we are the country of the human rights. We abolished uh, slavery. Mind you that we abolished slavery twice. You know, we are the only country that, who did that, but that's okay. Uh, and I think Italy copied, you know, the kind of um, French system. So they believe, you know, they are this rightful country too. Uh, and they have this uh, mythology that um, there is this mythology where they call themselves um, Italiani brava gente, so the good Italians, the good people. And you, <laughs> they created that myth. Yeah, they created the narrative <laughs> themselves. But in, in your podcast that you, um, that I've only just recently started to listen to, mm -hmm. what's, what made you feel more inspired to start that? Uh, my family. Yeah, and do you speak about all of these matters fully throughout each podcast, or what's the main subjects that you're working on at the so moment? So there is my, uh, first it started with my family story, because um, as nobody can see, um, my family is interracial. Uh, my mother, okay, she's Cameroonian black, my, my father is uh, white French, and my brother is mixed. So having all this mix, uh, I was always tired when people were coming to me, be it, be it black people or white people, and um, wanting me to fit into a certain narrative that, you know, I wasn't fitting in. So that's why I wanted to, to tell my story um, via this podcast and the Instagram page. And once I started this, I received a lot of messages from people from all walks of life. And that was quite surprising to me because I was expecting maybe, I don't know, more mixed or uh, black people, and you also had uh, white people in the, in the story. I thought, what are you doing here? <laughs> But um, that was quite interesting, uh, what, uh, what I had as a response. So after that, I was like, okay, since I'm also living in London and uh, I've also had experiences of living in different countries, I've seen that in this, uh, all these countries it's very different to be black, you know, and if you have different background depending on the colonial history of the country. So I also started to interview um, black Europeans, you know, about uh, who they grew up in the country, um, what was their experience, what is their um, uh, knowledge of, their, uh, of the colonial past of the country there, um, they live in. For example, I had this um, uh, friend I interviewed who is from Guinea-Bissau, and uh, she grew up in Portugal, and I think, um, seriously, as a French person, I don't know much about Guinea-Bissau. You know, and I don't know much about um, the colonization um, of Portugal of other African countries. When you know, it's probably the um, the country that had, yeah, you know, all the the colonization process as we know is in the 60s. 
uh, for Portugalese in the 70s. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this kind of, uh, of story and also the way they perceive black people, uh, when you know actually you had black people in Portugal in the 16th century, as of the 16th century, you had like, um, what you call that, even uh, black noble, um, who were nobles, you know, so I think it's quite interesting to notice that we have been there as soon as you have a connection with another uh, continent, you always have exchanges, mm -hmm. and um, we've been there since forever. So I, that's what I want to do with my podcast to explain that, because um, when they talk about immigration, it's as if it's a new, as a new, so that it'd be predating slavery. Exactly. Whereas there was there was black, like there was a black presence in England prior, like, I think the earliest remains they actually found in this country were black remains. Yeah. <laughs> but I actually wanted to ask you, in terms of, like, having your experience of living in London and of living in France, because there's a different attitude um, in terms of nationality, and we've kind of, here, we've got this idea of kind of uh, multiculturalism and that we are supposed to kind of embrace and you'll be able to hold on to your individuality, whereas I know in France it's very different because you have like the bands on the burkas and there's very much control, even though in this country we say we are accepting, but to what extent is still questionable. Um, so I think in France it's, um, you know, that, that I always have this discussion, like you feel like you are more free to be black in some, in some spaces more than other, and I feel more, I, f I feel myself more here than in France, for example, uh, because I know there are certain topics I cannot speak about, you know, um, with, with people. Why do you feel like you cannot? Because people get really aggressive with you, and um, they want to make you, it's always like, you always have to, it's even the case with my father that we need to be more French than uh, Cameroonian, for example, it's not like we can be both. Mm -hmm. that it's not like about being, you know, 50-50, it's not that. It's just that because we, we are this blend, obviously, you know, um, we are who we are. But in France, you are always asked to choose, not asked. They demand that you are more, in, in my opinion. Uh, you need to be more French. And um, there is also this um, thing, I also think that, um, because when you, okay, if you are born in France, okay, you are French, but... Um, you mentioned something about Italy, whereas if you're born in Italy and you're black, you don't get your citizenship. No, you don't have any citizenship, no. If your parents are um, immigrants and you're born in Italy, uh, you are not Italian, you get the nationality of your parents. You mm -hmm. are not uh, Italian and you get the nationality, I mean, you ask, you can ask for the nationality at 18, but if you um, get out of the country for whatever reason, you lose that right to uh, be Italian. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it creates a lot of uh, psychological problem for uh, black no, Italians. They have a lot of issues uh, mm -hmm. to deal with. Uh, but to go back to France, so I think they think that because we, uh, okay, if you're born in France, you, you are French, or if you come when you're a child, you, um, and end up having the, the French nationality, we should be like, oh, thank you so much, you know, mm -hmm. for giving us that nationality and stuff. And um, there is this thing where they are, I think they feel shocked if we are not grateful. <laughs> so I think France is much more, so we have all these principles of, uh, you know, freedom, uh, human rights, because, you know, 
uh, we inspired, I say Italy, but uh, the US also, you know, was, were inspired by France a lot. Because um, you guys protest a lot over there. <laughs> yeah, before nothing. I think it's a national sport, right? No, it's not. Uh, <laughs> it does not make any sense anymore. Um, but yeah, so I think we have a very close-minded vision of um, what, what what means to be French, and um, we don't understand that because you rightly have colonization and slavery before it created this movement and obviously these people uh, came uh, in the country um, there should be an understanding and that's the, the main the main discussion right now for example with the um, Arabic people and um, uh, some of men because not all of them obviously are Muslim Muslims and all this uh, question about uh, wearing the burqa the veil or not which for me is not a problem should be just more a matter of, okay, uh, let's discuss together and try to find um, a way to live together. And instead, it's always like, no, you have to abide by our principles that dates back from uh, the 17th century. It doesn't make sense. So with all of the podcasts that you're doing currently, are you speaking about all of these matters or what's the next, what's your next step? Okay. Because I know that you've got quite a lot already that are out there and you're now putting the platform on Instagram and social media, but what do you feel the next step is after podcast? Um, okay, so right now I'm working on, uh, because I stopped for a while because I was working, I got sick too, so that's why I stopped a little bit, but yeah, um, so the, the podcast is developed into chapters, so where uh, I use these chapters to tell about my family, and then you have epilogues where... Where can you see the podcast again? Just so uh, Spotify. Spotify, okay, we'll make sure to put the link on. And uh, you have epilogues where this is where I interview people. Um, right now, I'm thinking about uh, expanding more on my family with the podcast, uh, in the sense that I, starting this project, you know, because it was out of love for my family, uh, you also start to discover some sides you're not happy with with your family, uh, especially when you have a white father. Uh, and even um, my mother, in the sense that my mother was born right after the independence of Cameroon, so she has a vision that is quite uh, all French people, they are so great, you know, without them, you know, uh, the country wouldn't, you know, ex exactly. So um, having this discussion with my parents where sometimes it's, it's um, you know, I would say constructive, and sometimes I, they just drive me nuts. <laughs> Not to say. So I'm trying to incorporate uh, these thoughts, these exchanges. Um, my parents don't, don't speak English, so I'm trying to, to write, you know, uh, the scripts of the, of the podcast, putting uh, this into mind. For example, I have uh, one episode I'm going to put after that is about my father trying to explain um, why um, that even though he did the job at the time with my brother, you know, trying to understand, you know, at his level what systemic racism did to us, he kind of stopped. He's like, okay, I've done my job. No, you know, right now, finished. There is no, no problem. So um, try to explain why he thinks like this, because my dad was born in 1945, uh, so when France still had colonies, and when he explained me uh, how he grew up, it was uh, uh, kind of, in, of interesting to know that he was, uh, he grew up in an environment where uh, colonialism was kind of everywhere, even though it didn't seem so. 
you go to the cinema to see the movies. Before you go, before watching the movie, you have uh, the news telling you how it happens in the in the colonies, and um, they make you believe that the people in the colonies are French like you. Uh, and then you go to the uni, and you have uh, these these Africans from the colonies con uh, coming to the uni, and you see that uh, they are treated in a different way, but you still don't grasp that is a, is a, it's problematic. Then uh, my father also worked. Um, more than 30 years in uh, Occidental Africa, in the bank system. And he worked in, uh, his, first, his, his first job was uh, in, um, in, a, in a bank organization that was created by Napoleon III. <laughs> he arrived in Africa in 1977, so, you know, uh, all these things. So he, working in banking also meant that he was part of the system of France Afrique, so it's basically this economical system where um, France is basically uh, making the money for African um, ex-colonies, French, French colonies, you know. So, you know, I think if you are in this kind of environment, you still have issues, you know. I wanted to ask you, in terms of um, working in media, because obviously you've mm -hmm. created your own platform um, with your podcast, but I think... In contrast to making your own spaces, um, I'm still in my personal practice and just kind of being aware of mainstream media and what's happening. Like, for instance, the BBC only just announced a couple of days ago that um, all of their employees are not allowed to attend any black protests or any prides, or you could be fired. So, and the BBC is our main news and entertainment, mm -hmm. um, it's, it's quintessentially British television. Um, so I think, as in, how do you feel in terms of being an independent creator in creating media? It's almost as if, it's weird to say like you're trying to counteract because I, I feel that's kind of annoying and that's kind of like you're, they use a term like stereotypes and that we're like making work that is anti-stereotypes, but in, instead we're actually kind of telling our own stories and talking about our own history. How, how do you feel about the relationship between your work in the context of mainstream media? Um, so right now, um, I think I'm choosing also who I'm working with. Right now I'm also a writer for uh, this platform called Grio. Um, who is uh, an Italian platform, but it's also in English, where that is around the African diaspora. So I think I feel much more free in that sense because I can kind of pick, you know, who I want to uh, to work with. And also, um, I'm surrounded by people when, you know, uh, I'm like, okay, I have this story. Um, what do you think about it? Do you think I can talk about it? And we discuss about it. And they're like, okay, you can write about it. There is no, there is a dialogue. There is no like um, uh, trying to tell me to write something in a certain way, you know? Uh, like it could happen, for example, I know, well, let's say if um, I was writing for a platform like Matches, for example, and if I had to interview whatever, um, um, black designers, you know, they would have, I think um, I would be limited in uh, what I want to ask to that designer and I would be very much edited also <laughs> with the conversation. So I think uh, to 
being that um, let's say freelance, it's much more harder in the sense of uh, obviously money. Um, but uh, you also feel more free to collaborate with the people you want to. Obviously, when you have laid up, um, laid out a financial basis for you to be, you know, quite comfortable to to do so. Um, but I would say that with the uh, major media, when they talk about black uh, black people or they want you to to talk about it, there is always a time, and I don't know why there should be a time to talk about blackness. Um, there shouldn't be any time. It's you know we are there. Three, three, sixty, three hundred sixty-five days, mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. all time. One month is not, <laughs> doesn't cut it really. <laughs> exactly. So I'm always like, why do you, limit. yeah, limit? And there is also, um, you know, uh, working in fashion, you always hear those same names. I don't have any issues with, you know, Grace Wells Bonner. Love her work, but with her, um, then you have another one maybe. Uh, no, it's Bianca Saunders, then no, there, there is this new one, there's Debbie Magugu, for example, you know, this, uh, you, hear, you will hear these three names, you know, going around, and then... It's like what I said, it's like one creative at a time, rather than allow allowing everyone to be able to share their work. Exactly. Things like people that are accepted, and then they're just moved around, rather than exactly. being authentic. And it's as if, you know, when, uh, so the George Floyd as, um, assassination happened, so it, it was... It, it was as if people suddenly woke up um, about it. Um, and, and then we became yellow pages for telling everyone how to not be racist. Yeah. yeah. So, the, so that's also quite funny how in, let's say, the creative space, the corporate, you know, I would say creative corporates react to this, is that you need to make an announcement that that was so shocking, you know, that what you saw, um, that um, you uh, you invite people to donate to uh, the Black Lives Matter movement in the US. I'm like, don't you have people in the UK that die also? You know, that was um, this nonsense. Uh, and trying to find creatives outside of the country, the black creatives outside of the country, uh, find it quite problematic, really. It's this whole kind of, like I was saying earlier, about this kind of creating distance. Like, this is a problem that is in America, whereas essentially it is a problem in every... Well, it's a problem over the entire globe because exactly. racism and colorism and all of these different issues that have arisen because of colonialism are still very much in place within the foundations of our society. And unless we were to radically, like... Turn, turn it upside down. It's not going away at all, but it's just only, only now certain groups of people are waking up to it because essentially if, it wasn't, if you never had to experience it personally yourself, it wasn't your problem. Exactly. But even then, this concept of people slowly now waking up to it, a lot of it is just acting. A lot of people are now pretending to wake up to it just so that they can be seen as socially acceptable. But the truth of the matter is, a couple of months down the line, they're making things such as diversity boards and all of these things to tip boxes as, as if to say they've yeah. done something. But then you look in between the cracks and things are still the same. Like the head offices are still predominantly white. 
even their models, they may choose a mixed race girl, but they're, you know, they're ticking the box there. But even then, it's not, it's that's colorism. It goes straight back to it. It's all very temporary and it's like performance. It's performance activism. Yeah, it's, it's very performative, but it's actually interesting because I do it a lot because I'm, I'm, a, I'm a photographer and a filmmaker. Um, and I am kind of always looking at what people are doing and what's going on, but sometimes like I'll go through photographers' Instagram and I'll notice that only in the last year or so, they suddenly have a book full of all black and mixed race models. And then you go back a little bit further and all they've got is white models prior. It's, it's because it's, it's now, because diversity is seen as trendy suddenly, but you didn't, you didn't yeah, give two shits prior to. Uh, in order to want to be diverse and like diversity is almost it's not almost it's become the trend I'm, but I'm, even then the trends they they die out and this is something that we see when black lives matter was happening all of a sudden everyone was talking about it everyone was trying to make sure that everyone was exclusive of everyone and and whatnot but then once the protests weren't happening every weekend slowly it no longer became a mainstream media it wasn't forced to be the attention but you know okay so coming from a different uh, background, um, at least here you have a type of conversation. Mm. When I look back to Italy in the fashion system, I'm like, I want to die, seriously. So um, you have that designer called Stella Jean, and she's uh, italo um, Asian. Uh, she's the only black designer of uh, the Camera della Moda, so the um, Italian Fashion Council. She's the only one. And uh, so she uh, wrote that letter to uh, the president of uh, the Italian Fashion Council, you know, to tell, to tell him, okay, we need to be helping the black creative because we have creatives in the uh, black creatives in the country and we should, um, we should help. Uh, can you believe that no one in no media in Italy covered her story? I can believe that. It's happened all the but time. it was covered in the New York Times. Mm. She was on business of fashion, you know. So I think, in, um, I mean, as for what I know uh, with the fashion industry, I believe that this conversation, even though they can be fake or not, you know, uh, truthful, they're still kind of happening. Whereas if you look at, even in France, uh, even in France, surely for, in France, um, they are not happening. I'm sure that they didn't put any diversity, whatever uh, committee in any fashion company, um, because talking about, uh, about systemic racism is, a, is an issue. And you would even be surprised about the comments black employees can hear. Um, in, uh, in, the, in the office space in France. So I really think, I see, you know, I really see the difference. When I talk to my friends working in fashion in Italy and uh, they explain me what is the climate, <laughs> uh, as opposed to here, I'm like, here looks like paradise compared to what they're living. And then when I speak to my, uh, to my friends in France uh, who are working in fashion, same issue. They're like, they're like, at least you kind of have a beginning of conversation, whereas we just don't. But I do, I, obviously I don't have the same experiences of being able to compare to other European countries, but I'm, I'm kind of like so aware that it's almost like um, it's for the sake of it we're creating these positions. There are all these diversity roles that are being created, but 
there's so many people that I know that I've talked to who are in these positions, but when they're in these positions, they are so limited to what actual power they have. So you've got a face there within your company that is actually essentially just making you look good and to saying you're diverse. But I think it's like, it's almost like we've got, we're in a situation where we're like black faces, but not black voices. Mm -hmm. I think this is where we're at. No, 100%. That's always been the case, though, in my opinion. I think, don't get me wrong, it's, it's positive that these diversity boards are now put in place. But it's even, for instance, using the most mainstream thing that we can see, when we had Edward become the editor of Vogue, everyone was clapping and mm-hmm. everyone was super excited that there was finally a black face within fashion and a British fashion editor at that. But then there's only so much control and there's only so much he can actually do to make there be true change within the fashion industry. Because even if you now, don't get me wrong, yes, there's more um, black models on the covers and there may be more black photographers, but the ratio, you can't even compare, but then you can't put all of that responsibility on one person. No. The, the weight of the, the um, in order to break it all down and you have to literally start all over again because the years that have gone before him becoming the editor, mm. he, one person can't change all of that alone. And again, the people who are above him are the ones who say yes. The editor, yes, you have a powerful place, but you have the whole entire Condé Nast. Like, you can't fight that. And I think it's more so about recognizing that it's great if we have people who are in these positions, but we can't also expect them to eradicate everything that's happened prior to them being there. But I think it's also about levels. It's like, it's that you need to have diversity on every single level, from the top all the way down, and that means to be people in the middle ground. Because I, I think, like with the Edward, with Edward, it's kind of similar to Obama. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like you can just because you put somebody in the top position, there are so many other things that you're navigating that there is only so much physical change you can make, despite becoming the face of it or even the voice, but it's like, how much is, is it your voice that's allowed to come through? But yet again, that's why I'm, when we're um, talking about, you know, uh, me not working anymore in an organization, I, I do think um, I, you know, I've, I still find positive, for example, you have this kind of even here, uh, and um, I see a lot of independent uh, people doing things. I think it's really hard because you need the money to fund everything. Um, you need support too, obviously. Um, but I mean, it's still uh, happening because I don't really believe in organizations that have already been built for years and years. Um, especially in fashion, um, it won't change unless you, I think it was a little bit what Othello was. Um, uh, telling before, not um, waiting to have that seat at the table, but basically either making your own table, you know, <laughs> um, than, you know, just waiting for them to give, you, to give you a seat. But again, from my point of view, I always feel like that's why I came here, because um, in London, because I felt like I didn't have, um, I couldn't have this opportunity in, in France, for example. Um, because, um, 
again, um, it is very, it is a very rigid system. Even within fashion, you need to do a certain type of school. Um, I don't have a background in fashion, so um, would have been very difficult to be able to to work in fashion or even do some journalism or something. So, I think that at least we have the here. I what I see um, positive is that at least you can have the spaces, you can create the spaces, and uh, you won't be blocked to do that. If I was trying to do that uh, back home, only with black people, they would say, they would say it's a, what they call it, communitarism, or I don't know how you say that. No, it's just like, it's just like uh, you, want, you just want to stay with your community, you don't want to open up to the, um, to front, you know, to the concept of France, you know? Um, so I, I just, I know there are a lot of problems here, but I still see it is more positive because you still have the spaces and you, you can still have some dialogues, whereas in other spaces they absolutely—it it is not possible. It's very difficult um, to um, to have this kind of uh, uh, of conversation, be it, be it with uh, with black people. <laughs> Um, or uh, white people, you know, because when you are in a system where you are used to be uh, told not to talk about uh, who you are, you, you tend to behave that way. And once someone is doing it, you just feel a little bit um, uncomfortable. uncomfortable. And that's what my issue with the, with the podcast, when I was trying to ask a lot of uh, French... Because you interviewed a lot of like, musicians and artists for the podcast, isn't it? Yeah, and uh, when I tried to ask some people to tell me about their experience, they wouldn't, they wouldn't, they wouldn't let me to. Uh, you know, they wouldn't want to be on the podcast. They would like, yeah, I would like to talk to you in private for sure, give you some input. But when you then tried, did you, did you ask them as to why they didn't feel comfortable, or you just left it there? Um, some people they will explain you that um, they don't want, um, you know, to to go deeper into that question because it's still a burning issue for them and they are not, uh, they didn't, how can you say that, resolve the issue with that. Um, others, I think it's, um, yeah, they know they're black but they are not accepting being, I don't know what's being black, you know. Uh, so it was quite interesting when I was trying to find people but I think it's also a case of when certain people have reached a certain position, they're almost nervous to talk too deeply about exactly. the realities as to what they face in case they lose that position. Exactly. You know? Exactly. And it's more because I forgot to mention, so I have a podcast in Italian that's called Black Coffee, and this is where I interviewed this uh, artist. And uh, you realize that uh, they are very careful about what they are saying, because if not, they might lose that um, occasion uh, because they are so few, like um, black Italians are maybe less than 1% of the population in Italy. Um, they are so few and once they've reached a certain level, like you were saying, uh, they are so afraid to lose uh, that position that either they decide not to talk, either they decide to talk bad about mm -hmm. <laughs> another black person, you know? So, um, I'd say it's a very difficult, um, um, you know, thing to do to bring people to speak uh, about themselves or the, what they do uh, in in arts, you know. 
um, when it comes to their blackness each time. It's like, I always have to, uh, yeah. <laughs> Because it, it's hard because sometimes speaking out could mean that you're losing job opportunities and that's the thing I think you can often be in this kind of middle ground of wanting to talk about things that you think are important but then also you have to be conscious of your own livelihoods and still be a, still being able to to move through life yeah and Except the John Boyega thing. Remember the Black Lives Matter protest speeches when John Boyega said he doesn't care if he doesn't get any opportunities after that. And it was such an emotional speech, it went viral. But even mm. then, he was still given opportunities. But even him in his position, the fear in his voice of him recognising just simply by him speaking about not being treated equal mm -hmm. to somebody else simply because of the colour of his skin. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it was a painful speech to watch, but it's, so, it's a speech that so many people, even people who aren't in his position as an actor, even teachers, because even my mother, she was one black teacher in a predominantly private school, and all of the teachers were white, but even then, you, have, you feel like you have an element of responsibility, but then you're also a person, and you should feel entitled to be able to speak your truth. But again, within the institutions, once you're in there, you're so scared to lose that position. It's something that it trickles down. It's not just people who are in high positions. It's, it's yeah. having a position at all. But that reveals also that um, you, uh, there is a lot of trauma because if mm. you cannot you know, express yourself freely about what you are and what you think should be done to not you know, um, be in a situation of uh, racism every day, you know, mm. it's a situation of trauma. And that's what I've realized when uh, I was talking to, to people. And I have the most, that, not that to say that the conversations that are recorded are not interesting, mm. but um, the very interesting conversations are the ones off because they, this is where people are really telling you the real trauma, you know, and that um, condition of being black in Europe uh, as an artist, as a, you know, any black person is a condition of, um, yeah, trauma. It kind of makes me think of there's the conversation between James Baldwin and Nikki Giovanni when James Baldwin is talking about the reality of being a black man and that because through your working day and your working life, you have to adhere and you have to silence yourself in order to be able to make an income and to support your family and then how in which that impacts your home life and how you are going home to your family. And because you can't be vocal, in your work environment, you are taking that out on somebody else. So I think there's this, the huge impact on your mental health and also people around you, because if these frustrations are not being able to be vocalized somewhere, it is gonna have negative impacts elsewhere in your life. Yeah, I agree, but that's exactly why I did my, uh, my Instagram, because I was like, feel so frustrated not to, because I was feeling like, um, um, kind of the only one to have that kind of type of situation I was in with my family because um, I didn't, you know, the people who I knew had an interracial family were all mixed race, so it's a different experience, you know, than me who is black and having that, uh, that set up, you know. So when I started this project, I think um, I felt really um, kind of liberated, kind of, of something I wanted to say for so long. Um, and 
yes, it was about me, but it was also like, hey, is there anyone like me? Can we talk together about it? Because I really need, you know, to I have... I think that's what it's about, again, mm. Black Exchange is about community, because as much as you may have these inner frustrations or feelings, there definitely is always someone out there who's feeling the same, you know? Yeah. And I think even though like, we talk about like, the frustrations of social media, I think it has now created that community that you couldn't have before. Like for me, like I spent most of my childhood um, living in Kent in a predominantly white area, whereas now you can just, you can curate yeah. um, the, the artists and the people you see and the information you want to receive based on what you choose to follow on social media, which in a way you can almost kind of counteract the mainstream media in that way. Because I remember I was having this conversation with somebody and I was saying like, well, all, I, all I'm aware of is mainly predominantly like black artists, black models, <laughs> black photographers, because that is what I'm choosing to look at. So in a way you can, you can, you can kind of, yeah, create what, what you need to see because I think there's this idea of like, obviously you can achieve despite, but it's, it is very helpful to be able to see examples of success already to be like, well, someone else has done it. So, you know, it gives you the idea there is a possibility for you to also do it. Yeah, that's why, okay, so I have a podcast, but if you look at my Instagram page, uh, there's also these portraits of uh, black Europeans. And for example, um, I took, uh, who can I give as an example? Uh, you have the story of um, one uh, black Italian who could have been the first uh, black uh, boxing um, Europe uh, boxing champion, but it wasn't because it was during fascism, and so they just erased um, his bout with um, the other boxer. So people forgot about him, but he has an extraordinary life. Um, it's called Leone Jakovacci. Uh, or there is um, the story of this Afro-German called Hans Massaqua. Um, he was the grandchild of the first ever ambassador, black uh, African ambassador in Europe. Uh, and he was originally from Liberia. Um, and um, these kind of stories, I think it is important to know them, that these people are, you know, were there. And um, to not only look at kind of, um, how can I say, success in the people of now, but just to look at the past too, because it, it is quite important to see how these people, when you, they weren't living in the society we are living today, you know, succeeded, because this guy, Hans Massaqua, so uh, yes, his, grand, uh, his grandfather was the first African ambassador, you know, in Europe, but he was also a mixed, a mixed race child in uh, Nazi Germany. <laughs> and uh, when uh, the war started, his grandfather had to go back to Liberia, and then he just lived there with his mom. So he lived, you know, in this Nazi Germany, <laughs> Uh, being the only person, uh, black person, you know, uh, where he lived. So he had an extremely um, difficult life. And then you hear that uh, years later, he had become one of the most famous editor at Jet and Ebony magazine, you know? So that's the kind of story I think we need to know um, and that we don't hear enough about. Especially with the mainstream media, whenever it's a black successful artist, it's usually only 
predominantly music that the media likes to always portray as if there's only one there's one category that yes. black people can be a part of when it comes to the arts. It's very few and fair that they show, you know, black politicians who are or black judges or, you know, like mm -hmm. there's, there's always one narrative that we're meant to fit. And I think things like this in regards to history is there. It's just you have to literally look for it, it is, but it then is. share it amongst the community. But then also I think in some ways it's like they want us to know just enough history to keep us happy it's like mm. you can have martin luther king you can have do you know what i mean it's like you can have these tidbits but then also i feel like a lot of the kind of the stories and the historical figures that are still acknowledged um and a part of like mainstream history are for americans huh? are for americans are americans but uh, we're also people who are like end up being assassinated. Oh, yes. so, it's, so it's like you, you, you can fight as much as you want, but like, you, you know, this succeed. is going to be the ending story. No, but again, that's why I said these stories of um, all these people in Europe that were black and that were there before us, it's really important to, to find them because they, they have written books. The, the, the main problem, obviously, in Europe is that um, we don't all speak the same language, so you cannot know if you don't speak any of the language or you know someone from that place who can explain you the things. Um, but, because this is what I, I've tried to look, you know, I have the chance to speak three languages, so that's why I'm able to do that and to, when I find... But do you do the podcasts in three languages or is it just Italian and French? No, no, no. The one, uh, one podcast is in English and mm. the other one is in Italian. Okay. Um, but let, because I, so I see the podcast very attached to my Instagram page. Mm -hmm. That if you go through my Instagram page, I think you spend a lot of time. <laughs> it's a lot of posts. <laughs> <laughs> On it because uh, it, it's also like you, you, you need to love to read because I'm a writer after all. So mm. uh, it's what I do. Um, but it's a lot of research. Uh, in different languages. It's a lot of where can I find black people mm. uh, in the past. So uh, when I started my research, you know, um, to place these black Europeans, I was like, okay, where, where usually do you find black people? I say in the army. So I started looking, you know, uh, at, you know, army um, registry, you know, black people. This is where I found some, uh, some interesting uh, people in there. Then uh, when I went to look at Germany, the case of Germany, I was like, oh, that's funny that uh, the black people they have, they are all mixed race because you have a whole series of mixed race people in, um, in Germany during World War, World War II. Uh, and uh, they were mostly, most of them were abandoned. And where you find them? In circus playing Africans, Africans. Mm. So um, there is this. Um, we in Germany now, we were both speaking. When I was in Berlin, I counted like eight black people. There's not even many black people in Germany today. They, I think, um, again, that's also the thing when I say, when I was in Munich, I said I didn't see any black people, probably because I wasn't, in the right circle of people, you know. I think you probably have a community. I think you have a community of Afro Germans that is really trying to get heard. They are doing things, but because you maybe if you don't speak the language or you don't know the right people, you won't find them 
um, that easily. Uh, me being a Cameroonian, for example, I know because you have a lot of Cameroonians, because Cameroon used to be a German colony first. Mm -hmm. So you have a lot of Cameroonians there. So when I go, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to find a Cameroonian <laughs> community. Mm -hmm. And then I've been introduced to other communities, right? But um, when I was in Munich, I think also because Munich is, uh, is it was the city where um, um, Nazism was born, basically. Mm -hmm. So there is a, lot, a strong heritage here mm -hmm. that makes it a very white city, mm -hmm. as opposed to Berlin, for example. But in, I, I wanted to ask you, in terms of um, your different experience in the different places and, and through your podcast, the, the commonalities between the black experiences within different European countries and kind of, I think it's really important in, in that we find kind of a way in which we can kind of create community across the diaspora because we're all struggling within the results of colonialism and various identity issues in different places and how can we come together in terms of moving forwards as a unit, that's obviously not a question in terms of like, what is the answer? <laughs> um, so I think um, the thing with the podcast, I think that so as much as I had people who were, who find it difficult to, to chat, you know, with me, there were also other people that were really happy to talk. Uh, and I think that this happy to talk, it means a lot that um, we have a lot in common. Um, and that um, even if you have different, um, you know, countries with different history of colonialism, um, the the stories are sometimes similar. You can you can find common, common commonalities there, and um, I think them from the people I interviewed, they all feel um, that. Um, that they want to know about other black people in other countries, not just in the countries, you know? So I think that's the, um, that's why I think it, there needs to be some kind of platforms that, you know. I think it's just about like making spaces, making safe spaces for people to have conversations. And then thankfully because of social media and because of technology, we can actually access and share it with one another. But I think the foundations basically always comes to safe spaces and community. Mm. And I think we need to learn as a community to really share the knowledge that we have, unlearn things and relearn the truth and then share it with, uh, with everyone, really. Yeah. But on that note, we need to wrap up because of Auntie Corona and our 10 p.m. curfew. <laughs> so um, thank you all. Hopefully this will be great for the recording live. And thank you all for coming. And yeah, so this, this is probably going to be our last live event for a while. Um, but we'll probably go back to our classic Instagram lives um, because, you know, these are important conversations and we can't let you know, pandemics Lockdown stop these from <laughs> Definitely, definitely not. But so, yeah. yeah, thank you very thank much. You. Thank you for inviting me.